You know, there's a couple things in polite conversation you're not supposed to talk about, and you all know what they are, right? Politics and religion. Those are things you just don't bring up in polite conversation unless you want to go into all kinds of other stuff. But let's say that you do get into the conversation of religion. There's a few things you really don't want to talk about because it just produces more heat than light. And one of those things, most definitely, perhaps at the top of the list, if it's not number one, it's at least number two, and that is the doctrine of election and predestination. If you want to set people's hair on fire, mention God's predestination and election. And it's very interesting that the Apostle Paul, we're studying the book of Ephesians, and right off the get-go, he just goes right at it first couple verses out of the box and he talks about the doctrine of election and predestination throughout this letter he talks about it in Romans he talks about it in other places Peter talks about it there's just no end of biblical authors that mention this very troublesome doctrine and I'm saying troublesome because it is troublesome and if you're one of those people that the doctrine of predestination and election just does not bother you at all you really need to come see me so I can recommend a good counselor for you and medication. Because it should bother you. At the same time, I'm going to convince you beyond a shadow of a doubt this morning that if you do not understand the truth of this doctrine, your Christianity may not be Christianity. Maybe something else. It is so essential, so important, so... Uh, uh, essential, I'm out of words, to your Christian life, to understand what it is and why it's important uh, that we're going to spend some time on it th this morning as the Apostle Paul did in his writing and every, almost every other author in both Old and New Testament. It's that important. So, if you have your Scriptures, open them to Ephesians chapter 1. So now hear the Word of God as found in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. This is the Word of God. So why is it important? Why did I say that it's essential 
that you understand this doctrine. Now, you may not agree with me, and that's all right, or you may have a lot of questions afterwards, and I hope that's true, because I can't possibly explain to you everything you need to know. But let me say this. I think the Apostle Paul, I'm certain that the Apostle Paul is laying out some groundwork of why the church at Ephesus and elsewhere needed to know this. What was so important about it that they needed to know it? Why is it so critical to your Christian faith, if you're a Christian, to understand this? Well, let me give you four reasons why. Other commentators and scholars agree with this, not my own invention, but here they are very quickly. The doctrine of election will produce in you a remarkably robust and deep understanding of humility. It will also create in you what you need more perhaps than anything, and that is true dignity. So humility and dignity. Thirdly, it will provide you with enormous, unassailable, unassailable security in your Christian life. Many Christians are just fraught with doubt and they think, you know, if I'm not performing right, if I'm not doing something right, I'm going to lose my salvation. This doctrine will provide you with the security that every Christian craves and longs for. And fourthly, it brings us as a church, as a people, to a unified place of what is called doxology. The Greek word doxos means praise and worship. It brings us to a place of praise and worship that without it you can get there, but let me tell you, this will put your praise and worship on steroids. It will take you to places you never imagined possible because you will start to see the fullness of God's glory and God's grace and God's love for us in a way that we could never know otherwise. And so it's very helpful. Humility defeats pride and arrogance, but also gives you a sense of your worth. Dignity. Dignity restores the image of God in you. And it will help you defeat sin. You're going to be amazed when we talk about this in a moment. Security will defeat this performance, this this, uh, hamster, guinea pig life that most Christians live of, of work and work and work and work trying to make sure God really does love us. And so Christianity is a burden. And doxology. It will create true worshipers that worship in spirit and in truth. So quickly, let's look at humility first. Humility. The doctrine of election will defeat pride and arrogance. It will defeat pride and arrogance. At the same time, it will create a true sense of dignity. A true sense of your true self. Your true humanity. What you were meant for. So here's some questions. And almost everybody asks these questions. If you have some other questions, then after church we can talk about it. But right now, here's a few. How does He choose us? Well, look at the very first verse here, or verse 3. He chose us in Him. He chose us in Him. Look carefully. Remember, Ephesians is about the grammar of the Gospel. Look at the way Paul sets up these words. What do you see? He chose us in 
Him. He sandwiches you between two great actions of God. He chose in Him. Who? Us. He chose us in Him. R.C. Sproul says this, the predestinating love, listen carefully, the predestinating love of God always is to be understood to be in Christ. We are chosen in Him. There's no choosing outside of Him. If you are part of the body of Christ, then you are chosen in Him. That's your identity. Your identity is not as an elect or chosen person apart from anything other than Jesus. So we say in our church here at Christ the King, very happily say, it's Christ plus what? Plus nothing. You have nothing to bring to the table. If you did, it would have been unnecessary for Jesus to die for us. His death would have been unnecessary because God could have given you the list of things you must do to make it. And if you can find that list, I wish you'd show it to me. It just doesn't exist. Every list in the Bible, guess what? We have broken. And more. We've broken stuff that isn't even in the Bible. In the book of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah went to the people and he says, you know, you're so amazingly bad and so amazingly wicked that you have done things that have not even entered my mind. And you go, how is that possible? I thought God knew everything. Well, He does. There's a reason for why He uses that. What He's saying, He's trying to shock people. You're doing things that I haven't even thought about. And so we have broken the list, folk. We cannot find Him without being in Him. So how does He choose us? He chooses us in Christ. In Him. When does He choose us? What does the text say? When does He choose you? Before what? The foundation of the world. In other words, a choice was made freely by God to choose you. To choose you. Sinclair Ferguson, I'm giving you some authors that I know that many of you know and love. Dr. Ferguson says this in his commentary, while we are saved by faith, the origin, listen carefully, the origin of our faith is God's action, purpose, and will. The origin of our faith is God's action and purpose and will. And let me tell you, I'm pretty safe right now here at Christ the King. But if I were to leave here and go to some other churches, I would be castigated, maybe murdered for saying such a thing. Especially in America. Why? And it's because we believe at the roots of our being that we have power and control over God, above Him. That He's sovereign. Yes, we tip our hat to His sovereignty. We say, oh yes, God's all-powerful. But He's limited here. Here, He does not have power. Or here, He has chosen not to have power. Here, He's chosen to give His power and sovereignty over to somebody or something else. I beg you to find one verse in your whole Bible, Old and New Testament, that even intimates such a crazy 
Because when you say stuff like that or when you think stuff like that, when you encounter people that believe those things, and I'm preaching to the choir, unfortunately, today, but some of you are probably struggling. If you're not, again, I told you you need to talk to me. I struggle with this too. Because I want at my heart, at my core, I want to be autonomous. I want to know that I have control over my life. And unfortunately, we don't. So the origin of our faith is God's action, God's purpose, God's will in eternity past. That's where our faith starts. If you ask somebody, where did your faith start? You can say, well, you know, I believed in Jesus on July uh, 28, 1924, whatever the date is. I believed in Jesus. That's fine. But where did that belief originate? Where did it start? What Paul says is it started in eternity past with God's choice. With God's choice. Third question, is God's election then, if that's true, is His election arbitrary or capricious? Is it just willy-nilly? Is it just arbitrary? Oh, he's got, a, you know, he's got some really cool daisies up there in heaven. And he goes, I love you, I love you not. I love you, I love you not. And he hits me and it's, I love you not. And you go, oh, too bad for me, the daisy killed me. Is his choice arbitrary? Is it capricious? Is he going, "Ah, I'll choose whoever I want and I have no reason, no rhyme? Look at what Paul says. Paul is answering these questions. He's a rabbi, remember. He knows the answers to the questions before they're asked. No, it says he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. What? according to the kind intention of His will. He is not capricious. He is not willy-nilly. He's not arbitrary. He has a purpose and a plan in every single choice that He makes. Again, Dr. Ferguson. Or, no, this is, this is R.C. An arbitrary or capricious will, listen carefully, is an immoral will. It is a bad will. Immoral to choose that way, willy-nilly, capriciously, arbitrarily. There's a reason why the elect have been chosen to salvation. Here you go, Dr. Ferguson, here he comes, going to roll it out, pay attention. There's a reason why the elect have been chosen to salvation. But the reason is found in God and not in you. The reason is found in Him, not in you. In other words, God did not choose anyone because they qualified for the choice. But because He was pleased to extend His mercy. R.C. is saying He didn't choose you because you qualified for the choice, but because He simply extended the hand of love and mercy to you. How amazing is that? How praiseworthy is that? That He shows in a moment of kindness to each and every one of us love and mercy and kindness and goodness. Not because we qualify, but because He chose to extend mercy. So then here comes the next question. What then is the basis for His choice? Is 
God looking down the tunnel of time, down through the telescope of time into a future and seeing what you will do, some future decision that you will make. Is He looking down through time and, and, and choosing you based on the choice that you make? You now listen carefully to me. I'm going to ask you a question. And you've got to listen. Put your thinking caps on, class. Here it comes. Is it possible that God could have looked down through the tunnel of time, through the channels of time, into the distant future, and seen what you were going to do, and then made His choice based on that? Is it possible that He could have done that? All those that believe it's possible, please raise your hand. And make your position clear. Don't be a coward, some of you. Come on, come on. Is it possible that he looked down through the tunnel of time and, and chose based on that? Is it possible? Hands are going up and down and people are changing their minds. And yes or no? Okay. How many of you want to agree with me which is the right position? Listen carefully, folks. Because this, this, this weighs heavily on how you believe and what you believe about God. It is impossible. Did you hear what I said? Impossible for Him to look down the tunnel of time and see the future. It's impossible. Why? What? He already knows. He doesn't have to look and see anything. Your whole view of God is built around that. Do you understand what I'm saying? Is He God or is He not? Is He omniscient, all you theologians? Say yes. He's, he knows. He doesn't discover. He doesn't need to look to find. Now, He may use that language in the Bible because He's communicating with us who need that kind of language. But no, he doesn't need to look down the tunnel. He already knows. And for him to foreknow something is as good as it's being done. Are you with me? It's not like it's going to change. It is when he knows something. He's not limited in time and space. He knows. It's impossible for him to look down and see what I'm going to do. He already knows what I'm going to do. Listen to what Sinclair Ferguson says. I love this. This knocked my head off when I read this. And I have read some good things in my life and it's hard to knock my head off. This knocked my head off. Are you ready? Listen. Ferguson saying, is he looking down? Are you looking down the tunnel of time looking to see what kind of person you're going to turn out to be? Make his choice. Did he see that I was the kind of person that would trust him? No. How muddle-headed such an idea is. Only a Scotsman would say that, right? How muddle-headed such an idea is. I am the kind of person who is dead in sin. Without hope. An enmity, an enemy of God. There's nothing in me that makes God love me. The reason for His love lies in Himself. 
It is grace from start to finish. Nothing, nothing but sheer grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is what? The gift of God, not by works, unless anyone should boast. But don't forget verse 10. This is the key. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Imagine that. Imagine uh, a clay pot saying, "Oh, uh, today I'm going to make myself." What kind of muddle-headed thinking is that? That we somehow made ourselves. That we somehow created ourselves. That we somehow came from death to life by ourselves. That we somehow went from darkness to light by ourselves. What kind of thinking is that? It makes no sense. Grace, listen, grace by definition is one way. He chooses who He wants to love. And He chooses to whom He extends that special love. The Apostle John said we love Him because He first loved us. The Apostle Paul said God demonstrates His love to us in in this. Pardon me. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for who? The ungodly. The unworthy, the hopeless, the dead in their sin and trespass. This is not a New Testament concept. Pardon me, it's an Old Testament concept. Moses rolled this out long before Paul. It wasn't, he tells the nation of Israel, he tells the descendants of Abraham, it wasn't because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping a promise that He swore to your fathers. There's the answer. Why does He choose? What is the basis for God's choice of you? It's His love. Would you like it to be something else? Are you listening? Would you like His choice to be something else? If you're honest, you'll say yes, but then immediately you'll say no. Because our first impulse is to say, sure, surely he's looking at me and he's saying, you know, there's got to be something in Chuck that, that, you know, he's a good guy and after all he turned into a pastor. I mean, look at what an accident that was. And, you know, there's all this kind of stuff that goes on in our minds. That there's something in us. We want there to be something in us. But over and over again, he keeps telling us it's not because of you, it's because of me. And if you make it about you, you're going to live in doubt and fear and all the rest, all of your life. This will lock you and secure you. Listen to what Ferguson says again. The last thing, (coughs) pardon me, the last thing to die in us seems to be the lingering element 
of pride that says there must be some reason in me to explain why God loves me. But as soon as we have thought that way, we have compromised grace. And compromised grace is grace no longer. Grace is not simply a helping hand. Grace is life from death. Light from darkness. Death is freedom from slavery. Grace is absolutely one way. How wonderful, listen Ferguson, how wonderful on the other hand to reflect on this, that God loved me before I loved Him, before I trusted in His Son, before His Son came to earth, even before the creation of the world, can His love for me be that big, that long, that deep? Yes, indeed. And, here it is, if it is rooted in eternity, it will last to eternity. Believing this doctrine is essential. You'll never achieve true humility in your life until you understand it and embrace it and it becomes part of the DNA, part of the, the, the life that you live, the breath that you're living. You will never understand true humility until you know that it's all Him and none of you. And only that will produce the kind of dignity and self-worth and self-esteem that you really need to live with confidence. Let's look at the second one very quickly. We've got to hurry. Dignity. He says that we are holy. This is the purpose for which you were chosen. He chose us in Him to be holy and blameless before Him in love. This is a new identity. What I told you last week, when, when you say the word holy, especially people that have been raised in the church, what happens? All of a sudden, all these preconceived notions of holiness pop to the surface. Even people outside. Holiness is primarily defined by the world and people around us as an ethical code of behavior, right? It's how you behave. Holiness is how you behave. The Bible says something entirely different. The Bible says hagios, the word for holy means separated or set aside for a specific purpose. And the reason that thing is holy, whatever it is, could have been a cup, like the cup, could have been uh, this podium, could have been the, the, the clothes that the priest wore, could have been any a place, it could have been a geographical location, uh, a GPS location on a map. That place is holy. Why? Because God says it's holy and He sets it apart for Himself. It's not holy in and of itself. It has no intrinsic cleanliness that makes it holy. It's because God says, this is holy, it's holy. Do you see the difference? Once He does that, once He declares that thing to be holy, it changes the thing. Are you following me? And the thing then, because it has been changed and transformed, what does it do? It acts differently. It changes. Everybody wore clothes, but the clothes that the priests wore were special clothes. And whenever they put those clothes on, they took on something holy and they began to act differently. They did sacrifices. They did all kinds. They had to not go here, go there, clean this, do that. 
They were set apart. And God says, I have done that to you. I have made you holy and blameless before me in love for this purpose. And he goes and outlines it in the rest of Ephesians. We don't have time to talk about it right now. Understanding this dignity that you have, folks, this new identity, this dignity, will help you defeat sin. In fact, I would argue, I would perhaps overstate a little bit, but I think if you don't get this, you will struggle forever with your sin. Here's why. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6 said this. Listen carefully to what he said. Shall we sin that grace may abound? What? May it never be. No, absolutely no. Shall we sin that grace may abound? No, by no means. How can we, listen carefully, we skip this sometimes, how can we who are dead to sin live any longer in it? Do you not know, here's the rabbi speaking, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Do you see what he's doing? He's saying that when you came to Christ and you were baptized into His death, you died to sin. You died to sin to sin. He's talking about, listen carefully, he's talking about a new identity, a new you, a truly human you, a you that has the image of God restored in him or her, holy and blameless. And if you, in your struggles with sin, and we all struggle with sin mightily, in your struggles with sin, if you do not resort to your new identity, the new man, the new woman, the new person, if you don't go there first, if you go to the rules and try to, by willpower, not eat the chocolate chip cookie, you will fail. There must be something underneath that tells you you're new. I don't want to sin because I'm not that person anymore. And when you do sin, I've said this to you many times before, but when you do sin, it's the only thing that's going to get you back. Right? That new identity, knowing that you're accepted and loved, is the only thing that will get you back. That's why I tell you, I've said it for 11 and a half years now, run to Jesus when you sin. Don't roll out all your good works and try to do and get up earlier tomorrow morning and read your Bible and read your Bible and go to church and give more money and do more stuff. Don't do that first. First run to Jesus. Then do all that other stuff. If you get them backwards, folks, it's no longer Christianity. It's religion. It's something else. Do you you understand? It's that crucial. Without it, we have nothing. We have just another religion. And frankly, I'd rather do something else. But this, this compels me. This grips my heart to know that God has changed me and therefore I can resist sin. And when I don't, I can repent. Why? Because He's changed who I am. I'm always loved, always accepted. You say, well, you mean no matter what I do, I'm always accepted? Listen, I'm, I'm going to jump right now. Y'all watching? Watch this. No, I'm just doing that to get your attention. No matter what you do, you are always accepted. How often does God hold His nose at you? How often? How often? Never. Does He approve of your sin? I don't think so, because He watched His son die and you didn't. 
Did he do something about it? Oh, yes. How arrogant it is to say, oh, God could never love me again once he's loved you. Doesn't that make it because you're this or that that he loved you? Doesn't it, doesn't it take away all the ground for the love that he has for you, which is his son? Who would want anything else? Who would want anything less than that? Does it give us a license to sin? Absolutely not. In fact, I would argue it's the only thing that will keep you from it. Otherwise, you're just depending on you. And who wants to do that? I failed me a million times for 60 years. I failed me. Well, 59. I'm not 60 quite yet. <laughs> no, we are a muddled mess of conflicted interests and sin and blah, 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 blah. We do all that stuff. But I know this one thing. I know that He loves me and accepts me. I'm sure of it. Why? Not because of me, because of Jesus. I know that I'm in Jesus and I have security in that. Do you see? I have dignity. I have security. All the Father gives me. That's the third one. We're on to the third one now. All the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast him away. Jesus said in Hebrews 13, I will never leave you or forsake you. Those are absolute statements. I won't do it. When you go into those dark places, and we all do that, we go to those dark places of our sin, you know who goes with us? He goes with us. And while we're doing it, He is there. Not holding His nose, but He's embracing, He's pulling on you, He's tugging on you. Otherwise, you cannot count. You have no way to account for why you come back. When I come back to Him, it's because He has dragged me back with His love. When I make a mistake, when I boldly shake my fist in His face and say, watch this, and I've done that. Watch this and go do it. He just smiles like a parent and throws his arms around me and crushes me in his love. Have you not experienced that? Of course you have. There's no other way to account for why we get back. Humility, dignity, security. It defeats this idea that we are performing for God, that we are jumping through hoops for Him, that we're trying to satisfy Him with our good works and good efforts. You don't do it before and you don't do it after. Can you please your Heavenly Father? Absolutely. You should, you should strive to please Him with your good works. But know this, that even when you do please Him, it's still in Christ that He is looking at you. Yes, it's still there. It never goes away. If R.C. is correct, and who wants to argue with R.C.'s role? If R.C. is correct, he's all, we're always chosen in Him. And so that is the pattern for our life. What does it produce? Doxology. Praise. Look at verse 3 and verse 6. Amazing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ to the praise, verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. This humility, dignity, security will produce doxology, will produce worshipers who come to church and in their lives daily, but on Sunday morning and in their lives daily, at all points and all places, we are always worshiping God. All, how many times have I told you this, folks here at Christ the King? All of your life is worship. All of it. He loves football games. Did the miners win last night? 
Okay, he loves that. You go, are you sure? Well, I'm pretty sure. Of course, he loves art. He loves beauty. He loves recreation. He loves cars and motorcycles and bicycles and guitars. He loves rodeos. God loves the world He has made. He loves the diversity of the world that He has made. And we want to screw it down and narrow it down to just two or three things that He really likes. And most of them are at my house. That's crazy. He loves art. He loves beauty. He loves music. And we want to, we want to limit our God who is unlimited, who created a, a diverse universe that's amazingly amazing. And we want to say that he only, you know, he only approves of these things and we've got to slap Christian onto all of those things. He only likes Christian music or Christian this or that, or Christian that or that. Well, well, how come David didn't have Christian music? Do you see how silly? It's illogical. It doesn't make sense. Worshippers that follow. God says to us, the only religion in the world, the only religion like it where the God, the deity says, me for you. Me for you. And once you get that, once that rolls down into the deepest part of your soul, once that takes your heart captive, then you say in response to that, wow, you for me? <laughs> me for you. Me for you. I'm all in. Like Tim Keller says, famously says, I'll do what you say. I'll go where you send me. I lay the sword of my life at your feet. Command me. I'm yours. Only understanding true humility, true dignity, true security, you find this in the doctrine of election and nowhere else do you get the full, robust belief that God is all in for you. And how does that election come? How do you get it? Look at verse 7. Redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. You see, on the cross, God took His chosen One, His elect Son, His only begotten Son, the One who was perfect in every way. He took that man and He crucified Him. Don't think it was the Romans and don't think it was the Jews. God sacrificed His own Son for you and I. God put Him there out of love for us so that we could be transformed, so we could be different people, chosen and beloved in Him. I have been crucified with Christ Nevertheless, I live, not me, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Let's pray. Father, please help us to understand the deep, deep love of Jesus. Unbelievably rich and full. Help us, I pray. And make us the kind of people, the men and women and boys and girls that you want us to be in this life. Help us to understand our chosenness. That we have been added to that great throng of people
who worship you and have security in you and find their dignity and worth in you apart from anything other than your Son, Jesus. That in Him, in Him, we live and move and have our being. I pray You'll do it, Father, for the sake of Your kingdom. Amen.